Greenpeace, Oxfam, Amnesty International. We're all familiar with big names in the world of international non-governmental organisations, but what do they really do and why are they important? Sarah Stroop and Wendy Wong join us to help us understand everything we need to know about INGOs. You're listening to 1869, a Cornell University Press podcast. Sarah Stroop is Associate Professor of Political Science at Middlebury College, and Wendy Wong is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Together, they've authored the new book, The Authority Trap, Strategic Choices of International NGOs. So welcome, Sarah and Wendy. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Martin. Okay, so your book is all about NGOs, and I think many of us have sort of a a vague idea of what an NGO is. But curiously, or perhaps not, the title of your book is The Authority Trap. So tell me all about that. Okay, so um, our book, unlike others that have been written about international NGOs or INGOs, is not about the effectiveness of INGOs or their rightful place as important influencers on global politics. We kind of take those things as important and related topics, but what we are really interested in is how once an INGO is influential or has authority in global politics, its activities can be both enabled and constrained by that very same authority. There are some INGOs that have a lot of authority from all kinds of audiences, to name some states, corporations, other INGOs, the public, and we call those the leading INGOs. Uh, I think there's a tendency for people to think more is more, that is more authority equals more leverage equals more choices and more change. But the punchline of our book is that this is not true, that's not always true, that having more authority actually leads to fewer strategic choices for leading NGOs and it dampens their ability or incentives to call for systemic change. Leading INGOs tend to be reformist. Uh, They're trapped by their authority in the sense that they will tend towards moderation. And that's because in our book, authority is based on the idea of audience deference. So the more audiences you have recognizing you as an authority, the more you want to maintain that deference uh, in order to preserve your authority. However, the more audiences that defer to you, the harder it is to keep everyone happy. So in the end, you're trapped by the need to maintain the deference that forms the very basis of your authority but that also leads to making smaller policy asks. The only thing I'd add is um, if this is how the authority trap works for the leading INGOs that we talk about uh, in various cases in the book, um, the rest of the INGO community sadly is trapped by their lack of authority. So I, I, I'm really, uh, you, you just threw out a term that I'm not familiar with, and obviously I'm not an expert in this field, but you talked about leading INGOs. Can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, we um, create this term to talk about uh, a few NGOs that are the elite within the INGO community. They've achieved achieved this rare status of having lots of different audiences defer to them. Uh, in the book, we identify over a dozen of them and Unsurprisingly, they are familiar to most people, Um, groups like Greenpeace, Save the Children, Amnesty International, WWF, Friends of the Earth, Human Rights Watch, 
Um, these are the sorts of groups that have achieved incredible prominence in the eyes of policymakers and the public and corporations. Um, our argument is that um, these achieving the status of leading INGO is quite rare. Uh, but there are also some surprises, I suppose, in this list. And so, you know, while, while there are NGOs we all know of, there's also, for instance, the Salvation Army uh, is one of our leading INGOs. And I think that's because of the way that we use multiple measures to think about this idea of authority. So we're not just looking at the way states look at INGOs, but we're looking at the way their peers look at INGOs or the way that the media or people use Google to search for different INGOs um, in their daily lives. Okay. So um, two words also then jumped out at me in, in sort of that uh, opening description and, and then talking about sort of the more well-known INGOs. The word authority, which obviously forms part of your title, and the word deference or deferring, um, which you, you both have mentioned a lot. Sometimes those two words can have a somewhat negative connotation. So is there something, I mean, should we be negative or pessimistic about the work of these NGOs? Or, or is that me just, you know, putting too much inference on this? Um, I would say that if there is something negative about authority, it's this idea of power, um, you know, influencing others. And I think the way that political scientists tend to think about authority, we're thinking about rightfulness. And when we think about states, we're thinking about rightful rule. So in applying that to INGOs that are not states, they do not have um, a, quote, legal or legitimate reason to rule. And in fact, they don't rule. Um, we are applying this idea of rightfulness, of legitimacy, um, and in some ways credibility to what INGOs do. So um, in that sense, it's neither positive nor, or ne nor negative, I suppose. It's, it just is what we think about um, as the vehicle for INGOs to influence the world. Um, so in that sense, it's not pessimistic. All right. Okay. So... Um you, you have also mentioned, so taking the idea of legitimacy and what they do and the fact that they don't have any legal rule or a, a legal right to rule, um, how do uh, NGOs uh, uh, influence the practice of states? I mean, because that's really what we're talking about here a little bit, right, is how they use their authority. Yeah, um, and quite honestly, most of the people who write about NGOs are focused on the way that they're trying to change uh, the policies of states or intergovernmental organizations. Um, so we do tackle this question, it's a big one um, in our field, um, and we try to divide the strategies of NGOs into three different categories. International NGOs can collaborate with, they can condemn, or they can compete with states. So we look at um, the control arms campaign, for example. Uh, NGOs in that campaign co collaborated with middle power states and created an arms trade treaty that restricts the flow of small arms. Um, but NGOs can also condemn states. So we show how NGOs condemn the American and British governments after the 2008 financial crisis um, because they were failing to regulate their financial markets. Finally, NGOs can compete with states um, to develop regulations that will govern the behavior of other actors. So an example of this is the Forest Stewardship Council that tries to regulate uh, the timber market. So NGOs have a lot of different strategic choices as they seek to influence states. Um, and we argue that leading NGOs tend to be more collaborative and less condemning in their behavior. 
Um, I will say that there kind of an additional caveat to your question um, is we do think it's really important uh, the way that NGOs interact with states. There are all of these other audiences that NGOs are interacting with, and sometimes we don't pay as much attention to them. So in the book, Wendy and I were very intentional about thinking um, through how international NGOs might change their strategies if they were dealing with corporations or if they were dealing with their peers and not just dealing with policymakers. Um, so sometimes, if you're interested in social change, changing regulations is the answer, but not always. See, this may have been me just picking up on something that isn't of, of any value, but you, you sort of mentioned that most people in the field are focused on the way that NGOs are trying to influence states. Is that something that you both are focused on or is that part of what you're doing in order to show something else? I think, you know, this is, it's the way that international relations scholars have looked at these questions and, and tried to study INGOs because many of us study the, the influence and importance of states in global politics. And I think when this field first started out, a lot of people had questions about how INGOs would influence states um, because that was sort of the natural go-to. And as the field has evolved um, in terms of thinking about INGOs as political actors, I think that, that we have then started broadening our idea of what else we need to study um, with regard to the different aspects of INGO work. So INGOs often are not targeting states. In fact, they target other other actors like corporations or even one another. And they're often you know, uh, targeting organizations like the uh, United Nations, the UN. So all of this stuff needs to be considered. And I think when we take this interaction with states and INGOs as a starting point, and it is one of the, the major planks in the book, but I think what we, we go beyond that because we are... But like, and, and largely we're happy with the way that people think about the state INGO relationship. Um, and we're trying to move beyond that uh, in, our, in what we're trying to show what INGOs are doing and where their authority comes from. Just wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about another recently published book on NGOs. You can find information about Patrice McMahon's new book, The NGO Game, Post-Conflict Peacebuilding in the Balkans and Beyond, on our website cornellpress.cornell.edu and you can also listen to Patrice discussing the book with me in episode 14 of this podcast. So you, you talked about uh, the idea of collaboration, condemnation or competition. Um, are those ways, obviously those three things have very broad parameters, but are those ways that, that uh, INGOs can benefit uh, society, or, or does the, do benefits come elsewhere? Yeah, I'm not sure that there's an ideal strategy. Um, it does depend on the target a little bit, but, but we do have something to say on that question. So, for example, in the chapter where we talk about how NGOs relate to corporations, we track this broad historical movement from condemning corporations, um, and that was quite successful in forcing organizations like Walmart to pay attention to their environmental impact. There's this move from condemnation of corporate practice to increasing collaboration with corporations or competing to try to develop um, private governance systems. To our assessment, um, 
the collaboration with corporations by leading NGOs can be very problematic. Often corporations are seeking the participation of these leading INGOs because they want to benefit from the big halo that these groups have. It helps to launch the UN Global Compact to be able to say that some brand name NGOs support your initiative. The problem is, is that when, as these corporate-led private governance schemes develop, they tend to privilege the voices of corporations and shove the NGO voices to the side. And that's kind of the worst of all possible worlds. You've helped launch something which makes everyone else think the problem is being solved, but that something doesn't include space for critical voices like those that might come from NGOs. Yeah, I guess I should just add, um... In the book, we talk about how these strategies are not standalone. Sometimes they're actually simultaneous, um, and sometimes they're sequential. And I think it's a way to try to identify the different strategic choices that NGOs, uh, INGOs rather, have at their disposal when faced with a problem that they want some sort of change to come from. So, so it's not that they're. I think the the way that people tend to think about INGOs is that they are attacking, you know, attacking a particular target and asking that target or demanding that target make change. And we wanted to point out, in fact, that it's not always that cut and dry. And the very same NGO can both pat a corporation on the back and, you know, on another aspect, really be, uh, you know, very forthright about the problems of that corporation. So one example we talk about in the book is Greenpeace's approach to Unilever and its multiple uh, branches and how they were simultaneously condemning and yet collaborating on different projects. So um, looking forward, what's the future hold for INGOs? Big picture. Um, one of the um, takeaways from our book is not to kind of disabuse people of the hopes that they've placed in NGOs. Um, there are... Um, real victories that these leading INGOs have achieved. Um, but we would probably both ask the public to broaden their scope a little bit to think about a range of different organizations um, and also uh, challenge leading INGOs to be a little bit more bold in the sorts of policy pronouncements um, and, and proposals that they put forward. Um, that if people are hoping that NGOs will be agents of social change, um, try, try best as you can to live up to that hope. Um, I would add that the authority trap, at least Sarah and I think, is real and very much limits the work of INGOs and sometimes enables it. And I think what we need to really focus on is for the, it's not that it's all sort of, oh, they're trapped and that's that. In fact, we have to recognize the, uh, some of the consequences of the authority trap um, but also the fact that INGOs tend to take on really hard problems. Um, you know, poverty, famine, and stopping poachers are not things that are stopped in a day. And in fact, many states are, are rather um, rather strapped in their resources to, to solve these problems as well. And so that's why INGOs actually have the opportunity to take these on. Um, so, so pointing out the fact that INGOs are reformist rather than radical or that their, their policy asks might seem moderate in light of the way that we tend to think about INGOs as a democratic cure-all or a, you know, a, a forum opening actor is, I think, I think maybe too much to, to 
to ask. And I think that we really need to think about how incrementalist policy asks are actually part and parcel with, with politics. Um, and also, I think we do need to take the time to recognize the proliferation of INGOs as a, as a political actor. We haven't really talked about that here, but there are many, many more INGOs today than there were even 40 years ago or 30 years ago. And so it speaks to the strength of this kind of politicking, this kind of engagement that people are, are seeking. Um, so what what is so provocative and exciting about the, uh, the INGO as a political model? I think that is still something that um, this book sort of, we have one perspective on it, but that doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate or useful way to engage uh, in politics. Yeah, if I can add one more thing here, it's, um, and I think Wendy and I are happy to ride this wave of attention, uh, but we do expect that conversations about the role of INGOs in global politics will only become more frequent um, because of their growing numbers that Wendy talked about. You know, these used to be gadflies within larger political conversations, but more and more people are paying attention to NGOs. Multilateral organizations are creating more formal procedures for these groups to participate in their deliberations because they want to look more democratic. And a lot of developing states, um, Ethiopia, India, um, states like Russia, are cracking down on NGOs because they see them as threatening to their political power. So we expect a lot more people to be talking about these actors. And if our book informs those conversations, we'll be pretty happy. All right. Well. I think uh, that, that has really opened my eyes and I hope uh, for many others as well and certainly give us, given us something to think about moving forward. So uh, Sarah and Wendy, much appreciated. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Martin. That was Sarah Stroop and Wendy Wong, authors of The Authority Trap, Strategic Choices of International NGOs. If you'd like to get 30% off of this book, visit cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter 09POD when you check out. You've been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press 